You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. Certainly at the beginning of life and sometimes at the end of life, we need to rely on others for nutrition. Feeding at the end of life, a very important topic. Joining us to discuss this, feeding at the end of life is Dr. Stephen A. McClave. Dr. McClave is Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Nutrition at the University of Louisville School of Medicine in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome, Dr. McClave. Glad to be here. Steve, here's the major question I'll start off with. I know putting somebody on a ventilator or dialyzing them is often considered heroic care, meaning that things that you do to try to save someone's life. But how about feeding food or giving someone water? Is that heroic care or is that a basic necessity of life? That is a classic question, and the answer has evolved over time. 20 to 30 years ago, the old school concept was that nutrition was a basic necessity. Uh, we had this emotional or symbolic feeling about food. It was nurturing. It was almost like our patients were like a baby. We would never think twice about providing food and water to a baby, and therefore that's the way we should approach our patient. That feeding and nutrition was ordinary care. It was the basics. That dialysis or ventilator, that's something different. That's extraordinary care. That's heroic care, and that's different. What's evolved over 30 years of legal cases and these classic cases with Nancy Beth Cousin and Karen Quinlan and the Supreme Court coming in and just making decisions and making statements about this situation, our concepts have evolved. The courts see artificial nutrition and hydration as no different than any other medical care. It's not essential. It's no more basic than the other care you get in the hospital. And their perspective is that providing food or water, providing oxygen with a ventilator, putting a patient on pressure support, these are all bodily functions that the patient can't provide for himself. And so whether it's a ventilator for the oxygen or a feeding tube for the water and nutrients, there is no difference. It's all medical care. The distinctions of ordinary versus extraordinary are meaningless because the extraordinary care of today becomes the ordinary care of tomorrow. Steve, you know, I took a Hippocratic Oath, and so my question to you is, am I obligated to provide artificial nutrition, support, and hydration to someone who's terminally ill at the end of life? That is what we labored under for years. We felt because nutrition in the past, when we felt that food was a basic necessity, therefore we had a non-waverable responsibility. We had to provide that feeding. In fact, it was if we didn't, we were falling down in our job as physicians. You know, we had this paternal system that the doctor knows all, and you have to trust the doctor. And to maintain that trust, if we didn't feed our patients, how could we maintain that trust? How could we preserve patient dignity if we left them in a bed without feeding? And we felt that we needed to feed them regardless of the disease, regardless of the prognosis. We would feed them while the disease ran its course. And we could not even think about stopping it. And there was even a legal term called but for causation. But for the fact that we stopped the feeding, the patient would still be alive. We can't stop the feeding or it will kill the patient. 
We also had the concept that once we started feeds, we were stuck, that it was unconscionable to stop the feeds once they were stopped. And it was so exaggerated that there was criminal liability. People thought if we didn't provide the feeds, we were criminally responsible. And there was actually this dramatic case where uh, chief of surgery and chief of medicine were arrested and went to trial for criminal cause of death, criminally killing this patient when they didn't feed him. What's evolved is now the courts and ethicists don't feel that feeding is necessity. It's part of any other aspect of medical care. If the patient has stated clearly that they don't want care, we can't force it on them. That really when we preserve patient dignity, we're preserving their wishes. And if they don't want it, then we don't thrust it on them. We don't know what the patient's wishes are. We have to assume they want the nutrition and hydration. But if their wishes have been made known beforehand, we don't want to contradict them. A couple other points quickly. that The courts don't distinguish between starting and stopping or never providing. It's every day you're making a decision to either start feeds or not provide them. If you're on feeds, every day you're making a decision to continue the feeds. So the courts don't think you get stuck on feeding. And that but-for causation that says, you know, but for the fact we stopped the feeds, the patient's dead, that's flawed. It's the underlying disease process that the patient is dying from. Stopping or starting the feeds, there's no right or wrong about stopping the feeds in that situation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me today to discuss feeding at the end of life is Dr. Stephen McClay, Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Nutrition at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Steve, lots of times we're asked to place feeding tubes either through the nose or perhaps a gastrostomy tube like a PEG into patients with dementia or metastatic cancer. Are there any other alternatives when we go see those patients when we're asked to do this? Geriatricians in the field of dementia have given us the best set of alternatives, particularly in patients with dementia. And it's important to pay attention to these alternatives. Instead of pacing a peg in a patient like this, the alternatives are to spend an adequate amount of time at the bedside helping the patient eat, having appropriate consistencies to the food, paying attention to the taste and the temperature of the food, uh, making sure the patient has preferred foods and with strong flavors. And they've even worked out feeding techniques for patients with a stroke or who have dysphagia, placing the food well into the back of the mouth to facilitate swallowing, altering the size and frequency of the meals to promote variation, promoting a good cough after they've swallowed an amount of food, avoiding distractions, verbal cues as you're feeding them, capitalizing on the midday meal because that's when they're the most with it, that's when they're the most active, that's when you're going to get the most calories into them. These are important alternatives, particularly if a patient has extended family that can devote the time to providing these alternatives. Unfortunately, in a nursing home situation, in institutional care, staffing limitations prohibit these kind of alternatives. They can be absolutely impossible in a patient in a nursing home. As an endoscopist and a gastroenterologist and someone who does nutrition or clinical nutrition, from your perspectives, what factors would you say, determine when a PEG or a gastrostomy tube should be placed in an end-of-life situation? This 
comes up a lot, and endoscopists are thrust into the middle of a situation where they may have strong emotional feelings about whether to place it or whether not to place it. They may look at the situation, examine the patient in the bedside, feel this is a lost cause, and have a very strong emotional, religious, faith-based opinion that we should not place a peg in this situation. And that's really the wrong role. That's not the role of the endoscopist. The decision to place a peg in an otherwise end-of-life situation, a terminal cancer, dementia that's going to be a progressive downhill course, the first four questions are, what are the goals of this patient or the family? What do they wish? What are the patient wishes? The second question is, are those goals reasonable? Sometimes you just have to educate them, you know, that's unreasonable. The clouds aren't going to part and the sun come out and everything change with the peg. Can the placement of the feeding tube or the peg meet those goals? And then are the risks of the procedure acceptable in this particular patient? The role of the endoscopist in all this, if no one has gone through those four questions, then the endoscopist needs to start with those. And the endoscopist needs to be educated on these issues in end-of-life care. But the next big role is informed consent. That means he sits down, explains the procedure, talks about the risks, talks about alternatives therapy to the placement of the peg or the feeding tube, and then sits there until absolutely every question is answered. The key is not to inject his beliefs, not to have his religious faith affect anything, allow his prejudices to enter in the situation. We don't need or want the opinion of the endoscopist. He is there to educate, make sure the goals are defined, reasonable, and the peg with reasonable risk can meet those goals. Steve, this is obviously a very complex issue for physicians, but what do you give as advice to patients or families to prepare for end-of-life decision-making? The big thing is anybody that touches these issues, has family members, where the issue comes up on rounds or in the community, go home and talk to your spouse and family. Make sure that your wishes are known. It can be a difficult situation, but you need to have it. The ideal is that you have some form of an advanced directive, and really there are two forms of this. One is the living will, and that's where you sit down and maybe with your spouse or with your family, you write down your wishes, put it right in with your regular will, and in the living will, you would provide advanced directives that would go into effect the point at which you'd become terminally ill, and it would tell your family what to do in the case that you need mechanical ventilation, you need ventilation, you need hydration or feeding. The second is to assign, and you can do both, actually. Uh, you can assign a health care proxy, and this is kind of like a power of attorney, and often it's a spouse or a child or a close family member or just a, a friend in which you make your wishes known, and then they can provide guidance in the event that you become incapacitated, and they would make decisions based on their knowledge of your wishes and preferences. And actually, of the two, for healthcare providers that are making these difficult decisions with the family, with the patient, the more flexible the two of those advanced directives is the assignment of the healthcare proxy. Sometimes state judicial laws can interfere with a living will. They say, under no circumstances do I want a ventilator. Then the state says, well, you have to do a ventilator in this circumstance. The uh, healthcare proxy gives a little more flexibility because they know what the patient originally wanted, and they can be more flexible as they negotiate some of these state laws. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Louisville School of Medicine, Dr. Stephen McClave, who was discussing feeding at the end of life. Dr. McClave, thank you very much for being our guest on GI Insights. Nice talking with you. 
You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.